You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the, with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Thursday, March 2nd, 2017, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes Zardoz, which plays at Film Scene this Saturday, March 4th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing The Club, which plays at Film Scene Tuesday, March 7th at 6 p.m. as part of our world cinema series, Bijou Horizons. Finally, we'll be discussing The Red Turtle, which will continue to play at Film Scene throughout the weekend and all next week. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-host. We have Spencer Williams, a cinema major at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Spencer. Hi. And we have Chang Min Yu, a film studies grad student at Iowa. Welcome, Chang Min. Glad to be here. And I'm Leah Vonderheide, a film studies grad student as well. Let's start with our first film, Zardoz. Chang Min, perhaps you can share your thoughts before we begin. Sure. So Zardoz is one of the few films that is really terrible that it becomes good. This is not even that we are speculating it might be a meta commentary on the sci-fi fantasy genre. It is a commentary, both tacky, garish, and ridiculous. The story begins with a flying head, which is reminiscent of early Melius shorts. We then know that his name is Arthur Thrain. Uh, he's created for our entertainment and also mi- a mirror for our own existence. Then the audience is transposed to an airy land on which the barbarian exterminator, uh, exterminators gallop on their horses, massacring the so-called brutos. The folding head at the beginning now appears as a gargantuan tiki totem, mouth gaping open and spitting out gums. What happens next is perplexing for a first-time viewer like me. One exterminator, Zed, got into the open mouth and was transferred to a different realm where internals live. This all sounds perfect normal uh, to a degree. What is weird is the following interactions between this brute wearing a crimson underwear and some straps played by Sean Connery and the Havilland people who live like our imaginary Asian Greek nobles with flowy garments. The internals are all like Professor X in X-Men. They can manipulate, manipulate people by their sheer will or intense gaze. There's no uh, way to tell like which one is which. Moreover, they can also project what's inside a person's brain onto a big screen. This is what happens with Zed. The internals enjoy watching him chase down and rape, rape people. He's then given a chance to live for two more weeks for scientific purposes. Well, not to spoil the plot, I would just say that the amount of testosterone Connery's aged and shabby body excuse gives these hedonistic Eternals a new purpose. My fellow banterers, how do you like this film? Um, Spencer. I, okay. <laughs> um, well, I saw this a few years ago because my roommate showed it to me, and he told me before I watched it that it was like really, really, really good, and it would blow my mind, <laughs> and it would be nothing that I've ever seen before. And I guess half of that is right, um, where like I haven't really seen anything <laughs> like it. 
before. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, there are some really interesting effects that are used throughout. Um, and the costumes are um, eccentric. <laughs> <laughs> That's one word for it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's very, it feels, it feels very long. Um, it's a, it's kind of a grueling viewing experience, especially not, since I've already seen it, watching it a second time kind of felt like working out a bit. I liked it the second time I saw it more than the first time, which was at this point many years ago. And the first time I saw it, I had no idea what I was watching. So I was just kind of dismissive of the whole thing. Um, but this time I understood, as you point out, I mean, that it is a meta commentary on a sci-fi fantasy genre. I think the first time I wasn't really keyed in enough to realize that. And I mostly just thought, this is just horrible. Um, that being said, there's a real pacing problem that I noticed this time, or Unless they're doing this on purpose. <laughs> we never really know with these After Hours films. Um, where they will... Because there's a lot of conceptual ideas that are being um, acted out on screen for us <laughs> about either sci-fi or fantasy tropes and whatnot. Um, every time they enter into one of those conceptual sequences or scenes, that goes on forever like they'll be like oh now they're demonstrating essentially how they can enforce their will on somebody else and it involves a lot of humming and a lot of like spirit fingers and instead of just doing that for a second they'll do it for like six or seven minutes in case the spectator doesn't (laughs) understand Um, and they do that over and over and over again there's like a moment where Sean Connery is in a he, I don't think this is actually spoiling anything because um, it's so conceptual and it doesn't actually make any sense. Um, but he's in like a crystal of mirrors and like that again just goes on for like eight to ten minutes it feels like as opposed to just saying here's a concept. Spectator, enjoy like mull it over on your own time. They're like, no, no, we're going to take we're going to do this together. Really? and We're going to like hold your hand during this. Um, which I, th- I don't, again, I don't know if they're doing that on purpose or if that's a fault or flaw of the mo- movie. So, uh, the reason I said that this film is definitely a meta commentary is because that there are a lot of pretty modernist, even avant-garde sequences in a production like this. We see a spectacular mirror gate sequence that Leah just mentioned, and there are also some flashbacks and filmic references which feel inspired by the 1960s uh, cinematic modernism. As John Borman was one of those uh, first directors to be influenced by, for example, the French New Wave. So how do you see those? Um, I mean, this film feels very psychedelic in a sense, I guess. Um, I'm trying to try to connect it to the French New Wave, and I'm having a bit of trouble. Are you but... thinking of, like, blow up a little bit when you're yeah, talking about, okay. like, that modernism? Yeah, also because, like, usually we talk about John Borman, we are thinking about Point Blank. Like, oh, a very stylish kind of take on the thriller genre influenced by the French New Wave. I think John Boorman is doing something similar here, but I'm not sure uh, what it is, really. Like, I I think, like, there's a lot of confusing stuff that is uh, resulting from the storytelling. Because, like, this 
film doesn't tell its story in a normal way. It, for example, sometimes it just doesn't feel linear, right? Like it is right. going back and forth. Or sometimes forth. it feels like they forgot to write dialogue for Sean Connery. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'll be silent for scene after scene after scene. And then all of a sudden he'll just be speaking in his like Sean Connery accent and really eloquently and... And I know that that's sort of part of the narrative, except for it really felt like maybe they forgot (laughs) to write him some lines every once in a while. (laughs) Maybe he's an Antonioni character. You just don't know he did. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe, yeah. I think that to the sort of new wave 1960s modern European cinema, I mean, in the sense that it really conflates... um, the avant-garde with uh, hyper-masculinity and violence and sex and just says, like, all these things together, let's explore them <laughs> and, you know, not hold back uh, in that sense. I think that this film yeah. is certainly a piece of those, <laughs> <laughs> of those films. Yeah, like, usually you see that how French directors in general would try to exploit that potential between, um, on the one hand, like, Hollywood influences and on the other, uh, very high-modernist, conceptual experiments right mm-hmm. and here we see like i don't know a tacky version of that like seriously like i don't know just absurd version of that like it is too absurd even for me to appreciate that it's i don't know formal experiments in general so okay so basically zados is portraying a very rigid class society so on the one hand you have internals who live off brutos, uh, but they still have to work, which I don't know why. Uh, this, this is how the film confuses me. The setting is that all those internals were brilliant, well-off scientists, and they decide to uh, shut them off from all the suffering in the world to uh, pursue a higher, um, I don't know, experiment in science, for example, how to, uh, how can we make people immortal, for example, and which is like a central plot line of this film. And they also have cut, cutting-edge audiovisual technologies. So can you, anybody tell me, like, why do they still have to work? I feel like, well, I thought the Eternals were sort of immortal in the sense of, like, like, I thought that maybe the reason that they work is because they literally just don't have anything else to do. Like, what are they going to spend their time doing if they're not working, if they're not sort of trying to figure out, I don't know, their perplexing circumstance. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of, their occupations are basically time sucks. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think that the character, is his name Friend? Like yes. the word friend? Okay. Friend. Um, I think he explains that to some degree that they are doing the, they're kind of going through the motions of working um, in essentially what looks like, I mean, maybe this is a joke too. Like it looks like a a, a little medieval village and they're like really clean, beautiful, like middle evil, like villagers. Of course, it looks like they were dressed in the 1970s version of what a medi- medieval village would look like. But it's kind of like Marie Antoinette building her little medieval village, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Where she would, like, go play at, you know, working and seeing, being with the animals in a farm. And obviously yeah. it was all, like, for fun and to pass right. the time. And I yeah. think that that's – I mean, I definitely think that's what's going on there, is they have no other way to pass the time. And so they have constructed this kind of superficial work mm. society that's, like, really quaint and – 
Yeah, well, because like they say, they they wanted to like uh, do all these researches in in science, but like you don't see like you only see one person doing that in the entire film, right? And also, there's another sequence that we can talk about later. Uh, uh, the character um, played by Charlotte Rampling um, talking about penile erection, but. <laughs> Um, Spencer, you want, wanted to say yeah, something. Yeah, I was saying. Well, and then there's also like sort of like a subgroup of that like don't work. Like that, I think they're called like the apathetics or whatever. That just sort of like brood, <laughs> like kind of just like mule on the fact that like they're never gonna die, and so like that's their entire time is just consumed in the thought of that. And then there are like the older people as well that are sort of confined to this like other separate. It feels a little separate house, I guess, full of like other old people that I guess also are not really going to die. So there are, there are like these weird sections where their work doesn't seem to be the priority either. Well, and they've, cause they've gone like different versions of crazy yeah. from this whole immortality situation. Like the apathetics just have given up completely. And then I think it's the insurgents are the older people. Renegades. The renegades, sorry, the renegades. Um, and they've gone just sort of like, a generic form of baddie, right? right. <laughs> like they also can't really handle this sense of immortality anymore, and so they've kind of gone nuts. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of the uh, Charlotte Rampling sequence, let's talk about the, like <laughs> how this film tries to uh, exploit uh, soft pornography. So there's this interesting sequence about penile erection and its mystery. <laughs> uh, Charlotte Rampling playing. Consuela tells us that the function of a hard-on makes no sense in a scientific point of view. What does this sequence contribute to the entire film? I don't get it, but I, I, I mean, it is a funny one. I feel like there's like a very ha- like heavy-handed thing going on where it's like the pe- the penis gives <laughs> life, but also if you, the penis is also destructive and the penis can be destruction at the same time, it can be life. So I don't know. I'm thinking maybe like, I don't know. There's like some kind of thing where like someone or the movie, I feel maybe wants to say like, we're trying to strive then for something that's like in the middle between just like it's pleasurable and it gives life, but it's like not destructive. I don't know. Maybe this whole film is sort of just like a PSA for consensual sex. I don't like. Oh, I disagree. <laughs> Even though there's like. I'm pretty sure the message of this film is the opposite of that. I don't know. Because, all right, my reading of that is that they've, okay, they've evolved to a point where they're no longer interested in having sex, right? And all the men were impotent, right? Right. So they've both... um, It's almost like a different version of idiocracy or something where, like, they've evolved to a point where, like, they both don't find any pleasure in it because they're, like, too smart for it. And also, they've they've realized that they don't need to procreate because they're living forever. So, like, the Um, two things happened at the same... Like, essentially at the same time. Like, we don't need any more people because no one's ever going to die. And two... We like we're so smart, and we're in this like heightened conscious awareness place where they don't even sleep. Right? Um, I don't know why they still eat, (laughs) Um, but they don't sleep, and they don't like have any pleasure um, from having sex. And they also are really peaceful. 
And it seems like there's a suggestion <laughs> that like the Sean Connery like violent nature is arousing them and that uh-huh. that's actually a good thing. And that's why they get so interested in this like memory of the rape that he committed uh-huh. out in the like barbaric lands. Um, and then increasingly throughout, like when he kind of revives some of the apathetics, mm-hmm. it seems to come from his violence and like his violent nature. And then in the next scene, they're like having an orgy. So I think that there's an implication <laughs> that like we both need violence and sex to be healthy human beings, which I find really disturbing. <laughs> and and again, part of that 1960s modernism. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> See? We are always coming back to the 1960s. Wait, but does anyone else agree with that reading of the film? I can see film? that reading, yeah. Like, okay. I mean, I'm on board. I think, I think that's a reasonable reading. I think mine's funnier, general. but... <laughs> I think it's terrifying. Also, and it is about... Like, it is not even, like, like using a young actor's body, right? Like, so, like, that... Yeah, it's Sean Connery in a diaper. The <laughs> like a diaper, but he has like the X, like, I don't know, are they like bullet thick cases? Yeah, the like, like shells for yeah. his gun. It's fashion, look it up. For his handgun, which you, I don't think those, I'm not a weapons expert, but I'm pretty sure those two things don't go together. And I, I think the paradox of the film is that I cannot help but feel like this is just a bunch of stupid people uh, role-playing like in a little village, right? Like because they don't seem to me very smart. It's like <laughs> it's like that scene that we were talking about in the Love Witch, where everyone's like dressed up all like medieval, and it's like so performative. <laughs> it's like not real. It's very not real. Yeah, but they're yeah. buying into it. Yeah, I guess if you don't, yeah, if you're gonna live forever, you've got to kind of play act your way through civilization. Yeah, through <laughs> your life, yeah. the rest of your entire life. Um, yeah, I will say that the reason why I watched this movie originally is because I was doing a project on utopian slash dystopian films. <laughs> they usually go hand in hand. <laughs> usually if it's a movie about a utopia, you I mean, quickly watch sense. the downfall of it. <laughs> um, so I would just encourage anyone to like like watch a bunch of these types of films together just to compare and contrast because I found that really pleasurable to watch these like different versions of utopia and um, different than versions of dystopia. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We uh, should wrap up there Uh, again. Zardoz plays at film scene this Saturday, March 4th at 11 PM as part of Bijou after hours. For more information on Bijou after hours, check out bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss the club. No means no. There's nothing that warrants rape. Just because she's drunk and can't answer, it's still rape. The Rape Victim Advocacy Program can help you if you've been raped with counseling, legal, and medical advocacy. Help is only a phone call away. The local rape crisis line is 319-335-6000. Or call the RVAP at 1-800-284-7821. Or go online at www rvap.org help end sexual violence in iowa city welcome back to bijou banter on krui iowa city this is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at film scene 
Let's move on to our second film, The Club. Spencer, interested to hear your impression of this film before we begin. All right. So directed by Pablo Lorraine. Lahain. 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 Um, Who also directed Jackie, which all of us liked. Um, Comes the story of four... These are... You can't see me doing this, but I'm using air quotes. Um, Retired (laughs) Catholic priests who room together on the outskirts of a tiny Chilean beach town. Well, retired is a fancy word for exile in this case. Each priest has committed a terrible deed and is confined to the house, and they all seek penance for their sins, which include um, child abuse, sexual misconduct, and baby stealing. In exile, their only source of entertainment comes from a greyhound dog that they all that they all own collectively, and they use to compete in races for money. Um, and overseeing them is ex-nun Monica, um, until a new priest, Father Garcia, comes to seemingly rehabilitate them in a series of one-on-one interviews. However, things become complicated when he discovers that each priest carries no remorse for their sins. And in addition, a local man who has a history with one of the priests begins to disrupt their otherwise quiet and lonely lives. Father Garcia is thrust into the lives of these banished priests and slowly becomes privy to how complicit he is in regards to their actions, especially once the local man, named Sandokar, continues to rear his head. Uh, The film is shot remarkably, with sweeping cloudy backgrounds and low-lit silhouettes. The choral score also serves to unease the viewer, as actions and their consequences begin to spill forth and lead to violent confrontations. I thought the film was expertly crafted, and yet... I was left feeling a bit cold in the end, which I'm not entirely certain. I'm not entirely sure that I could have left this film feeling any other way. Um, (laughs) But what did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, if you mean cold in the sense that this film takes you into the deepest, darkest corners of humanity, then (laughs) absolutely. And not only does it take you there, but it takes you in ways that are that are pleasurable and are even comic sometimes. And make you kind of question the um, elasticity of morality. And so it is a very disconcerting film. And it's, I mean, just beautifully executed. Laharine is a real master. I mean, I had no idea that this was um, by him while, like, I think I realized like five minutes into the film. But I didn't, I wasn't going into it initially expecting that. And uh, you can see all of the... um, fundamentals at work i guess from all the things that we really enjoyed about jackie uh i watched this film along with spotlight so like you can see that i mean these two films are i don't know the two sides of the same coin but like i like this film better just because that i think the uh, the theme of guilt is cannot be so easily dispelled by a certain kind of positive narrative like what Spotlight does with its story, right? As if like, okay, we now expose this scandal. Uh, people seeing have been redeemed in a certain way. So like, I think uh, Spotlight in that sense is a feel-good film. Like it is trying to lift that moral weight uh, from the audience. And this film makes you feel guilt-ridden. Like, you feel like, oh, you are, like, uh, you share part of their mentality. And, like, um, although, like, they are, they all committed, like, serious crimes. But at the same time, La Hain doesn't just give us, like, 
a sinister depiction of all these characters. Uh, he tries to find, uh, I would say, humanity in their daily lives and their daily in- interactions with each other. So I like this film very much. Yeah, so the house in particular I find to be an interesting character in the film. On the one hand, it operates as kind of a purgatory, I guess, to these disgraced priests. It's not prison, um, but they also have limited freedoms. They have they usually op- they operate under a very strict schedule, and that has certain rules, like they're not allowed to be in public together. Um, they're only allowed out of the house at certain times during the day, probably when no civilians are out and about. Um, But on the other hand, the house also seems to represent sort of corruption and an institution that seeks to hide away the crimes of those, the crimes committed by those within it in order to sort of save itself. Um, Do you guys agree? Does the house represent the Catholic church? And if so, how do we reckon with its portrayal as sort of this den of sort of snakes? It feels yeah, I mean, um, it was having seen Spotlight, I guess, almost two years ago now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's impossible not to think back to that film when you are watching this um, and thinking about the the essentially the problem of the institution itself, that here is an institution that has built itself and its leadership and its structures all around a very strange rela- relationship with human sexuality. Um, and then on top of it, because... Because of its, um, because of both that and then the way that it wants to protect itself and not evolve, um, really, um, even though there are conversations about the quote unquote new church in this film, um, yeah, this desire to just hide these priests away in this purgatory is probably a good word for it. Because if they kicked them out of the church, there would immediately be a record of the reason why they were kicked out and and they, Mm -hmm. and they refuse to do that. So it's this really dark, ugly um, side of that institution. And maybe at this point, inherent part of that institution. I think there's a reason why Catholicism um, has seen so many of these cases. It has to be structural and institutional, right? So that I think that, uh, so in order to uh, maintain the integrity of the structure, which is, uh, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, people have to do all the things to uh, cover this kind of thing, and like they have to move people around. Um, I think, I don't know, I think the house, because of La Hain's, uh cinematography, it feels uh, very much ordinary, but at the same time depressing. But you can imagine this is the life people will have when, when they are just being imprisoned in this seaside town, right? So um, I think like that, uh, itself speaks very much to uh, the thematics of this film. Um, also, I don't know. When I was watching the film, I feel like... Um, I think, I, I don't know, but maybe the priests like in the film are happier in this house, although they, they have limited freedom, but they are not priests anymore. And like they also can't express their inner violence, for example, by dog racing. Right, so I think that there's that that interesting dialectic going on there, like how they find finally find a way to express their inner frustration through uh, this theme of uh, gambling on dogs. Yeah, well, and the film does this interesting thing where it 
keeps you shifting your allegiances. Uh-huh. I mean, because he's such a skillful filmmaker, it doesn't do any kind of um, routine identification anyway in terms of how it's put together. So you're instead really left to question like the level of their criminality that led them to this house or immorality. Um, it leads you to question kind of who who ends up a priest in the Catholic Church to begin with? Like, what was their upbringing that kind of led them down that path? Um, and so sometimes you're really rooting for them, and then sometimes you realize these are these are sometimes extraordinarily immoral characters who um, you don't want to root for, and you don't want to forget about the victims of their crimes either. So it it kind of has you, I think not like zipping back and forth with where you feel like your empathy and identification lies, but it, you kind of like, I don't know what a good word is, but you're kind of like meandering back and forth. I was kind of left wondering. So father Garcia comes in sort of after this very pivotal moment that happens with one of the priests and um, a victim of his past. And so he comes in under the guise of rehabilitation, but he's actually there, I think, to sort of scout and make to see if, if they're going to get rid of the house completely. And I was wondering then, if they do, if they were to get rid of the house, what would happen to the priests <laughs> inside of the house? Would they just be moved somewhere else, or would they like go to prison, or what? How does that work then? If they get rid of the one place that's sort of confining these people. I mean, I think that he's suggesting that they would either go to, like, a mental institution. They'd have mm-hmm. some, uh, maybe a couple of them committed. And then um, I, maybe there's some question of them being prosecuted. But some of their crimes happened a really long time ago. Right. So I think there's also just the sense that, like, we could just cut you loose at this point And you're going to be on your own. Live like yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the... Um, Inquisition that Father Garcia represents in this film is also ambiguous. Like, uh, I think the film wants the audience to understand that these priests are the products of a social institution. Um, maybe they were born poor. Maybe they chose to uh, devote themselves in uh, to the Catholic Church. But no matter what, it is part of the system. But like. What Father Garcia represents is now the system wants to get rid of these people and they, they, they want to do it as painlessly as possible. So I think that's why, like, you, you don't feel like any, I mean, you don't feel any sympathy toward these characters, yes, but at the same time, you feel like this is not, um, their guilt are not originating from their individual individual choices like mm-hmm. by a larger degree so like that make makes us feel very conflicted about this kind of plot development yeah yeah um there's a moment where one of the priests sort of openly talks about his homosexuality and sort of comparing and contrasting it to sort of heterosexuality which he believes really only has one purpose which is procreation <laughs> um, and he makes the argument that like true pleasure is really only found in homosexuality because you're, no, you're not procreating so like what else are you doing then it's for pleasure um, and this is like an interesting statement from a priest in sort of a film about the dark underbelly of Catholicism um, where priests aren't sort of, no one is supposed to be outwardly expressing any sort of sexual interest at all 
Um, but it's also feels the conversation feels kind of humorous at the same time. And do you guys feel similarly? Were there other moments of dark humor that sort of caught you off guard? And is that humor kind of necessary? Uh, would it otherwise be sort of just like a slot to just sort of get through if there weren't these sort of like moments of humor? But also does that, those moments of humor kind of make you feel uncomfortable that there are moments in this very, very dark film that you find yourself sort of chuckling or laughing at? Well, I think it's humorous because um, Laharin seems interested in uh, revealing the real absurdities within the institution of the Catholic Church, right? right? So what's confusing and absurd and funny ultimately about that conversation is is intricately connected to the way in which the Catholic Church has set itself up in, in suggesting that you know, all of their leaders are are not engaging in sex or thinking about sex when that's never true. <laughs> like, <laughs> whether they're gay or straight or what have you, there's just long histories of priests having active sexual lives. Um, and um, so he's trying to suss out like how he feels about sexuality after he's been in a in a in an institution that has like so warped his thinking about it that mm. of, this is the only logical um, explanation for him, right? That oh, like here's what I understand about sexuality is that homosexuality is the only like pleasurable sexuality um, because all other sex is for procreation because straight people don't have non procreative sex right right like which but you have to understand that uh they don't even like um and they don't preventive measures exactly right right. like here's the the church also like so not this isn't even just about priests like the church doesn't allow sex or doesn't allow contraception yeah for anybody so yeah the the whole thing is so but that kind of that's why it's funny right like because the whole logic that they're still operating under is so medieval Right. That kind of logic actually was one of the ways uh, for which to champion homosexuality in the 60s and the 70s. So, like, for example, in a lot of Pasolini's writings, you do see this kind of logic because homosexuality is not productive. So that is why it's better than heterosexuality, because it has that kind of radicality, right? Mm -hmm. It is not trying to uh, reach like a final destination, not trying to have a baby. So I think, uh, yes, and I can, that kind of logic seems to be... Um, it seems as mythic as the original logic of the Catholic Church itself, yes, right? It's right, like they both yeah. then end up being these like theses on uh-huh. um, human sexuality, <laughs> yeah. which are both not entirely grounded in a, in a day-to-day experience. Yeah, so like <laughs> you can see that I think that kind of radical argument about homosexuality uh, oftentimes appears uh, in films about Catholicism and about uh, how people should deal with this humongous institution and how, like, its attitude toward, like, human sexuality. So, I mean, I do, I, I find Lahain's humor in general very subdued. Like, you almost want to laugh. But you you can't. Yeah, I don't know that I ever <laughs> laughed out loud. But I found it like it's not like it's a light touch. It's not this movie dark, 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 dark. But you, um, there's the pleasure in watching it is very similar to Jackie, right? Like yeah, where yeah. you're really engrossed and want to know more. Maybe and... I'm just a horrible person. 
I mean, just, <laughs> it, like I feel like in watching like La Hain's works, you just have those ha ha moments. Like you ha- you have like deep down in your heart, just like ha ha. But like in a very like weak way, like oh yes, that's a little bit funny, but not really. I mean, I found the same thing. There's a conversation that takes place with a priest who essentially has got, he was the chaplain for the army. So what they're talking about is the fact that these official army officials were confessing war crimes to him, which then implicated him in, in, in war criminal activity, um, which that also was a moment of absurdity because you're realizing that here's another institution the military yeah, yeah. <laughs> that does all of these horrible, inhumane things that we sometimes condone and then sometimes, you know, have a real problem with and d- call it immoral. And other times we call it heroic. So I found, yeah, this kind of laying bare of the ridiculousness of these huge institutions. Um, what was funny deep down is what says. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Are we good on time? Or do you do want to talk about Monica one more? Yeah, one last okay, time. I was just okay. being sure if we had time. Okay. Um, the most cryptic character in the film for me is the jailkeeper Monica. Um, what do we make of her and her presence in this very like male-dominated space? It feels I don't know. She we don't really get to know a lot about her. There are a lot of vague um, sort of like nudges as to like what could have possibly brought her there in the first place, but they're never really spelled out in the way that they are for the priests. And, like, even when she's talking about... She always has this, like, really, like, very strained smile on her face at, like, all times throughout the film. That, as the film goes on, it slowly becomes, like, a grating sort of, like, presence, I guess, in the film. Just, like, this weird plastered smile that you totally know is fake. But you don't really get to know sort of, like, the inner workings of, like, what's going on with her as much as the other characters. And so what did you guys make of her presence there? Well, I thought it was, like, uh, a great performance. Like, a really... um, I really enjoyed her presence on screen, and I thought the performance was really careful and measured. Um, The only problem I had was that she almost ventures into it like a psychopathic um demeanor at times and i think that's a little problematic when she's the only woman on essentially the only woman uh in the film because then she starts to seem a little bit like more evil or more um disturbed than the rest and i don't think that's true and i don't even think that's really the message of the movie it just that was my only hesitation with her i think uh in the hyenas gloomy moral dramas you always have that kind of uh reticent character and uh she reminds me a little bit of uh the housekeeper in hitchcock's rebecca right in a sense that kind of um organizing maternal presence in the house so i think uh by using her lahain is trying to uh, maintain a certain kind of delicate balance between Otis Priest and Father Garcia, and also to give us a sense of how I don't know, like just like there's this weird uh, gender dynamic going on that even femininity has to be distorted within this setting. 
I, I agree. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we're going to wrap up there. Again, the club plays at Film Scene Tuesday, March 7th at 6 p.m. as part of our world cinema series, Bijou Horizons. For more information on Bijou Horizons, check out bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our third film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 32 degrees in Iowa City. Tonight, a low of 17 with isolated flurries. Tomorrow, Friday, increasing clouds with a high of 38 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. The Red Turtle is an animated film from Studio Ghibli, the world-renowned Japanese animation film studio. Nominated for Best Animated Feature Film at this year's Academy Awards, The Red Turtle, which is essentially a silent film, ultimately lost on Sunday to Walt Disney's Zootopia. But I had the pleasure of watching this film in a packed theater where children outnumbered adults about five to one. And I can say that the Red Turtle certainly held its audience in rapt attention during its 80-minute running time. The film begins with a castaway on a remote island. Desperate to get off the island, our protagonist builds a series of roughshod bamboo rafts only to be thwarted at sea repeatedly by a giant red sea turtle. Unable to leave the island, the man soon forms a complicated and lifelong relationship with the sea turtle for whom the film is named. From its themes, tropes, and overall narrative arc, The Red Turtle is a film about the circle of life, from the gruesomeness of our bodily necessities to the necessity of our dreams and desires. I have to admit that I probably would have had a more cynical reaction to this film had I not had the opportunity to watch it in a theater full of children who were audibly delighted by the many animated creatures who swam, crawled, and scurried across the screen, including ghost crabs, seagulls, fish, worms, ants, and of course, the red turtle. Spencer Chungmin, were you able to watch this film with a childlike sense of wonder? No. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, okay. So in my viewing experience, it was a very, like, sparse crowd. Um, I think with only one child and his grandma. And they kept get doing, like, a running commentary throughout the whole film, <laughs> which is fine, which is fine. Um, but, like, the film itself, for me, I don't know. It felt like I probably would have enjoyed it a lot better as a short film. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, like, I didn't... I found that the lack of dialogue in this case for me didn't work in the sense that I never really f- cared about what happened to these people who also may not be people. I don't like I don't like <laughs> I don't know. And it's like I was found myself more curious about the circumstances of what even led the guy to the island. You know, I wanted to know all of these like very intimate personal details about the characters that I am not privy to because no one ever speaks. And so and I wanted to know like I don't want to spoil anything, but, like, what happens to them post-island? You know, it's just, like, I don't, like, I don't know. There's, like, there are lots of, there are lots of, like, visually, like, spectacular things that occur. And, like, I really sort of, like, the animated, like, gross crabs in particular seem to have their own personality without ever speaking. Um, But with the people, um, there's, there's, like, a one-noteness to them as, like, beings on this island like we sort of sort of already understand how they're going to process being on this island before they do like oh he's gonna end up on this island he's gonna freak out and then something's gonna happen where he's not alone on this island and 
then it's gonna make do and like I don't know I would have preferred a more Lord of the Fliesy kind of situation but I don't know like I think we can say the red turtle for the majority of the movie it it turns into a woman yeah on what plane of reality that's happening obviously we don't really know but I don't care I think (laughs) like usually (laughs) Studio Ghibli's films are ideologically dubious and this is definitely the case for the red turtle, right? Like the, the red turtle represents the the maternal embrace of the sea, and it is like taking the guy in, giving him a livable life, give him a great looking young man, and they have to send the man away. Like just keeps going on and on and on. So usually, like I mean, I think usually. Uh, for example, Miyazaki's films are more complicated because it has more characters, right? But because his film has only three characters, so like that kind of dubious dynamic between characters becomes so obvious, you just, you just cannot ignore it. Like, I was like, okay, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> is there anything surprising that is going to happen? No. <laughs> Say that's hey what again. I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, they do say hey a bunch of times. Hey. 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 And no. I can be like, oh, is he about to do something else? No. No, no, no of no, course no. not. No, I <laughs> no. And, yeah, I I I like the only fringe quality about this film is how these characters look. Right? They look like they were from they would be from like a French animation, but um, like in general, I think it's true. I didn't even like put that together. That right, it yeah. is directed yeah. by a French director. Yeah. Oh, uh, so I, 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 I don't have anything. I mean, this is a pleasurable film to watch if you can appreciate the plastic pictorial qualities of the film because it does take advantage of all those, for example, sea waves, uh, the different sceneries on the island, the great um, bamboos, uh, and and there's like, you know, cute crabs. Uh, but the crabs are a huge hit with the children. I, I mean, can tell you that much. And they don't need any, like, the ki- there's a, cr- a crab shows up in the second scene of the movie, right? Before yeah. we even, like, see him on the beach. Yeah. And it crawls up the leg of his pants. Um, there's no nothing really happens after that. There's not like a then physical comedy the way that you might expect from a Disney movie, let's say. But the kids did not seem to care. They thought that was hilarious. They thought the whole presence of a crab on screen was great. Um, they thought a crab crawling up your pants is funny enough. Like nobody was. They started laughing immediately. I found that amazing. I was no, like, no, no. oh, I didn't know we should be laughing already. I think <laughs> the crabs are the best part of this film. Yeah. I think they should the most three dimensional characters. Yeah, they the do become a huge ongoing. I think these like they should just make a film called uh, the Ghost Crabs. crabs. <laughs> <laughs> like the kind of film that would scream. just cut all the humans away. Like just yeah. like oh, okay, we're going to present you this film with all the crabs yeah. in the world. This is the kind of film that's gonna to like be a hit at like your local like aquarium like amphitheater that they always have and like those bigger aquariums mm. where like you go in and like you learn you have like a movie that's screening that tells you about sort of like the ocean it's like i've had that feeling the entire time i was watching it like i could i really just would rather go to an aquarium <laughs> or, something, or like a wildlife reserve or something rather than see this movie 
Well, okay. So UI Associate Professor of Animation Peter Chanthanacone talked about the Oscar-nominated animated shorts with us this year and the last two years. He's an advocate of animated films exploring worlds and characters that live-action film can't, right? As opposed to trying to replicate exact human facial expressions, for example. Um, Did the Red Turtle at least make good use of the animated realm by this standard? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I've seen a lot of stuff that happens in this film, like in live action films before with like, I guess the use of special effects and whatnot and like the tsunami sequence. I don't know why, but I kept thinking of The Impossible, <laughs> like that really horrible movie with Ian McGregor, but like the tsunami is spectacular in that movie, um, which is like an awful thing to say, but it's like, <laughs> like visually spectacular. I don't know. There wasn't anything in this movie visually that I was like completely blown away by, but like there's sort of like... There are moments of artistic, like, flourish that are beautiful to watch, to see, I guess. Um, I don't know, like, the foliage of the leaves. Um, I'm really reaching here. I don't know, like, I... Uh, <laughs> I don't um, know. The Red Turtle. I think the film... The Red Turtles, yeah. The film is just as barren as the island itself. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy. All right. So here's what I was thinking about when I was watching it. So the the humans that are there um, are really one dimensional, as we've all pointed out. Like we don't really learn anything about them. We don't know the backstory of this guy. Um, we don't get a lot of facial expressions. Um, but I did think all of the kind of swimming under the ocean, like where you would be underwater with the turtle or the guy or other fish or something I thought that was really beautifully depicted and also it did give a space for all these other animals to have characters of their own without being completely anthropomorphized right so like the crabs are a really good example of this and and the crabs are interesting because they both like ate things like there's a lot of dying in this movie and like killing of things or things that are like die naturally and then get eaten or skinned a lot or skinned or something. And like the crabs also get eaten at various points. So like, it's not like you're kind of interested in the crabs, but like every once in a while they'd get scooped up by a seagull and you'd be like, Oh, that crab just died that I was kind of rooting for. <laughs> um, I think the issue here is that this is a, a Robin, a Robinson Crusoe kind of narrative, right? Uh, but instead of showing us uh, Crusoe going all, going through all these trials, like uh, you, you have to find resources, etc., cetera, uh, there's a woman coming to help him, which is just like, I mean, I don't get why you have to like uh, portray a very um, nuclear unit on this island. I, I mean, if that turtle is a man, I would be like, oh, this is something new. <laughs> right? Why? What? <laughs> oh my god! Your sex is going to be more pleasurable than if it was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> See, so I'm just saying, like, just like everything here is just all convention now. There's like something that kept bothering me throughout the whole film too is that when they swim, they never move their legs. They literally <laughs> just like fan out, and then that like pushes them in a great distance. But they never because they swim like sea turtles. But like the guy does the same thing, but he's not the one that comes out from the turtle. He's just like a guy that was marooned, but he like he somehow adapts. adapts. But like that doesn't. <laughs> 
that's not I feel like that's not how that works like I'm just like I hated it so much I was like use your feet and like they would (laughs) when they would go underwater for like prolonged periods of time like it made sense to me oh like okay the turtle people can obviously hold their breath like forever but some there were moments where like he would be underwater for like a very very long time where I was like hey he's dead movie's over let's go and then he would just pop up again and I'd be like oh gosh 30 more minutes cool I think the reason, all right, so going, I can't explain why I can hold this breath so long, but going back to Changwin's point about why is this, like, why are they so intent on creating a traditional family um, at the center of it? I think because the movie's trying to, as you said, Ghibli likes a good metaphor, <laughs> um, and, you know, it points out kind of, they're on this island, but we're all on this island Earth, right? So, like, what are we all doing, right? People tend to just, in the end... Lots of people, most people probably couple off. Lots of people procreate. Lots of people then have adult children that they have to be like, all right, you're leaving the nest. See ya. (laughs) Um, And you grow old and you die. And like, I think that this movie is trying to, it's, the movie's exploring that idea. And I think the woman turtle (laughs) character (laughs) is also trying to make our castaway comfortable with the fact that his life was going to be this life no matter where he was whether he's on this desolate island or whether he's wherever he came from like the the circle of life quote unquote essentially is going to follow these rhythms and this is what it is when it's really stripped down to its essentials there was a moment (laughs) that also that was a very linear interpretation yeah that was really beautiful Thank you. Um, but there's another moment that I'm really just on a roast right now um, where they're, like, building this really huge fire um, out of just, like, every single tree that's, like, on the island, it seems. And, like, the fire is, like, the biggest fire. And I'm like, oh, that's, like, maybe, like, a signal or something. Like, someone's going to see the <laughs> fire and then we're going to go to a different set or, like, something is going to, miraculous is going to happen where they're, like, saved or, like... Or, like, something is going to take them away from the island, from the fire, and, like, that doesn't happen. It's literally just a fire, like, a gigantic, wasteful fire for fire's sake that never amounts to anything. And then, like, then they all, like, then someone dies. And it's just, like, I don't understand. I don't, there are just, like, moments in this film where, like, I, that sort of raise expectations and then completely doesn't, like, care about them at all. And maybe that's just, like, a me problem. I don't know. But I don't know. When I see, like, a giant fire, I'm expecting, like, a like Titanic to come through and, like, save them or something. I, don't I mean, know. again, why do any of us build campfires? Like, we don't, don't. do it for any reason. <laughs> People just do it. They sit around fires. They okay. build big bonfires. But something like, to do together. Resource. I mean, all the Yes. Humans are great at wasting resources. <laughs> There's other than the dubious gender dynamic, there's also this suspicious uh, return to nature, right? Like, oh, yes, uh, the guy seems to be from a civil war, right? He, like, he's is supposed to know some sort of culture or language of some sort. Like, and, like, the, the film just wants to get rid of all of that. Like, as if, like, oh, if we all go back to the prehistorical time and you can just find a woman, even she's a turtle, you can have, <laughs> you can have a baby with her and, like, your family is going to go through some trauma, but that's okay. But in the end, it is going to be a fulfilling life. Yes. 
yeah. go, Studio Ghibli. There's something really biblical. It's also very French, right? About the film, <laughs> it feels. Like, I don't know. I was constantly thinking yeah. about Eden or just, like, something along those lines. And, like, oh, the destructive nature, like, with the tsunami and, like, the flood. And I'm just like, oh, like, there are these moments where I'm like, aha. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but then there's, like, also these moments of great hallucination where I was thinking, oh, well, why, like, and it's so clearly a hallucination, too. Like, the film makes it, like, very obvious that, oh, okay, so these orchestral, like, white wig men are, like, a hallucination. But then I'm like, okay, but why, how am I supposed to believe then that this, like, turtle woman is also not, like, this hallucination. And then I was thinking, oh, maybe it's going to get really interesting where we figure out that this entire situation is just one giant hallucination and he's just, like, a destroyed individual at the end and, like, has to reckon with the fact that there was no turtle and that never happens. I think that's a totally fair reading of the movie. But, I mean, like, I don't think we have to believe that any of it really happened. Um, I just wanted some edge. Um, I have... I, probably one last question here. I appreciate the beautiful animation of the Ghibli Studio films, but I have to admit, I probably get a bigger kick out of the Disney or Pixar animated films. Um, but I'm wondering if I'm simply biased by my American or maybe just Western perspective. I like some studio. I like. I feel like I really. I mean, I love Spirited Away, and I love those kinds of films where like I feel like the surrealist aspects in Studio Ghibli films are always sort of really amped up, and like in Pixar, it's like. There are surreal elements like toys coming to life and like interacting, but they're always so grounded too. Like you really are like believe that this is like occurring and there's nothing so outwardly magical about it. It just feels natural. Like, of course, these toys are coming to life and talking to each other, you know, and it's never like, oh, there's like a dragon that's like appearing and like a witch that turns into a bird that turns into this other thing. So I don't know. There's like, I appreciate that aspect of Studio Ghibli films, but I think what Disney and Pixar really nail is sort of like, the emotional sort of resonance of sort of like everyone feels like a human or something. There are some like even like the short film that we were talking about that was nominated, The Birds, there's something about the parent child dynamic there that is very sort of it feels human somehow, despite not having humans in it. Wait, are you know. talking about Piper? Yeah. That okay. One. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think I mean they tend to anthropomorphize they're everything everything to such a degree um in a way that i think there's a much gentler touch with the ghibli films uh i think usually when people talk about japanese animation now they think about okay miyazaki so there's always that very strong tradition of mythological fables happening in uh, those films but i think uh japanese animation has a a very interesting genre that uh, touches upon this, this kind of middle middle bro level about everyday life because like in America either you have Disney or Pixar animation films or you have Simpsons or like mm. like uh, uh, Sponge uh, SpongeBob SquarePants SquarePants SpongeBob uh, SpongeBob SquarePants correct uh, okay which is a very beloved character that I'm I was a little too old for but like uh-huh. people like that not across generations but people who grew up with it like it well into yeah. Their later years. So like like uh <laughs> I, for me like SpongeBob or like Simpsons uh are, are always almost about like everyday lives. Like they like the ridiculousness of everyday lives. So like uh there's just no middle brow kind of animation here. Like they uh trying to depict the society in a realistic way. Mm. 
So, yeah, that's true. Right? So, like, that's, I mean, but a lot of, for example, Japanese animation films I've seen do touch on that sensitive area. For example, one very famous film is Old Man Z. It is about, like, how, like, this kind of old people facility, they're using a certain kind of machine to take care of old people, but those machines later turn into robots. So, like, I mean, it is still fantasy, but it touches upon, like, real social issues, which is something that um, American animation doesn't usually do. Maybe Avatar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. But, you know, no one really liked that in the end, so I think we're going to see a lot more of those. Um all right, well, we're going to wrap up there. Again, The Red Turtle will continue to play at Film Scene throughout the weekend and all next week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To find this and past episodes of Bijou Banter, please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. All of our episodes are also available on iTunes. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Spencer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Tongue me and it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. I'm Leah and I look forward to more banter next week.